part two today. And um, all the other prophets we've covered in one week each. This one, we're on our second week, and we're only going to make it part way further. So um, it looks like Zechariah is going to be um, a three-part um, lesson. But if we'll turn to Zechariah chapter 1, let's do a quick review of last time to catch us up to where we are today. Um, of course, the prophets Zechariah and Haggai preached together, and as we'll see in a second, they took turns with some of their messages preaching after the return um, from Babylonian captivity. Um, Ezra chapters 1 through 4 lay the background for the book. Um, chapter 5 aligns with it. Um, the date was the second year of Darius's reign in 520 B.C. Haggai's first sermon was on the first day of the sixth month. Haggai's second sermon, the 24th day of the sixth month. Um, then his third sermon was on the 21st day of the seventh month. Zechariah's first sermon, which we looked at last week, on the um, it was in the eighth month. He didn't give the day. Then Haggai's fourth sermon was on the 24th day of the ninth month. So notice six, seven, eight, nine. Um, the messages that we have recorded um, in Haggai and Zechariah so far are following one. Well, uh, in the first month there, there were um, two sermons, but each month we're receiving something, or the, the Jewish people were in the Holy Land. Um, 520, of course, is the year, as we've already said. Zechariah was, uh, his name means Jehovah remembers, or Yahweh remembers. He was the son of Berechiah, the grandson of Edu, the prophet. We'll learn more about those men later on. But uh, last week, we talked about Sermon 1. We just put point number one being the reason for the sermon. And um, he gave that in verse number 2. The Lord hath been sore displeased with our fathers. And because of God's displeasure, um, he was calling them as a nation to repentance. Um, and then, of course, what we were calling lessons learned there, there were the lessons that they were to learn from the mistakes that their fathers had made, and um, they were to walk in obedience to the Lord. So, gets us back to where we are. What happened? Hey, can we pull up today's lesson, actually? That was from last time. It would the new one would be in the email. It has the same title though. Boy, that surprised me when the screen went black. I'm like, that just doesn't seem right. That's okay. I meant to specify that in the email and I forgot. But this morning, um, we can go ahead and continue while that is switching over. This morning we're gonna look at the visions of Zachariah. So we have his first hello graduate. This is the vision of Zechariah. <laughs> no, if we turn to Zechariah chapter 1 and verse number 7, he gives the date. Ah, here we go. He gives the date of this 
There we go. Okay, the date of the, these visions. He said, upon the four and twentieth day of the eleventh month, which is the month Sebat, in the year of Darius, came the word of the Lord unto Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, the son of Edu the prophet, saying, I saw by night. So he begins telling us about these visions. This happens in the 11th month on the 24th day. So let's look at these um, visions that begin here, verse 7, and go to the end of chapter 6. And as we get into these, I wanted to show this picture. Um, this is something that Will, Pastor Will Swim sent me. It shows all, all each of these lines is our cross-references in the Bible, from Genesis to Revelation, seeing so many cross-references. I told him I had always wondered where the emerald um, rainbow was that was around the throne in heaven. It must have been made of that. That is a joke for anyone who's going to take me too serious sometimes. Um, anyway, I, I wanted to show this to just see that there are passages like Zechariah, that we have to compare scripture with scripture to put them in their contexts, to make sense of the prophecies. Uh, Mr. Bogner and I were talking about that last weekend. You just really need Daniel and Revelation um, to put these passages um, and other passages into um, a historical frame line on where, where things will happen. So let's look here. This first vision, the vision of the red horse. Let's read the beginning of this. I saw by night and behold a man riding a, upon a red horse. And he stood among the myrtle trees that were, those were evergreen trees that grew in the Holy Land and were in the bottom. They were in a small valley. And behind him were, uh, were there red horses speckled and white. Then said I, O oh my Lord, what are these? And the angel that talked with me said unto me, I will show thee what these be. And the man that stood among the myrtle trees answered and said, These are they whom the Lord hath sent to walk to and fro through the earth. And they answered the angel of the Lord that stood among the myrtle trees and said, we have walked to and fro through the earth and behold all the earth sitteth still and is at rest. Then the angel of the Lord answered and said, O Lord of hosts, how long wilt thou not have mercy on Jerusalem and on the cities of Judah against which thou hast had indignation these threescore and 10 years. So these 70 years um, God had had indignation, they said. And the Lord answered the angel that talked with me with good words and comfortable words. So the angel that communed with me said unto me, cry thou, saying, this is what he was to say, thus saith the Lord of hosts, I am jealous for Jerusalem and for Zion with a great jealousy. And I am very sore displeased with the heathen that are at ease. For I was but a little displeased, and they helped forward the affliction. Therefore, thus saith the Lord, I am returned to Jerusalem with mercies. My house shall be built in it. 
remember what the context is. They are building the house of the Lord. God said, my house shall be built in it, saith the Lord of hosts, and a line shall be stretched forth upon Jerusalem. So I, I, want, <clears throat> I want us to look real quick at another passage in Ezra chapter 6. Ezra chapter 6 and verse 14. Let's flip back there. Ezra 6, 14. Um, Haggai has been very specific already, and he was talking about the fact that some of them were saying it's not time to build, and he was making it very clear it was time to build God's house. Um, and now Zechariah is preaching, and now Zechariah is having this vision, and God tells him very clearly his house is going to be built. Um, if we look at Ezra chapter 6 and verse 14, we see what the result of these messages were that Haggai and Zechariah were giving to the nation. In um, Ezra chapter 6 and verse 14, it says, And the elders of the Jews builded, and they prospered through the prophesying of Haggai the prophet and Zechariah the son of Edu. And they builded and finished it according to the commandment of the God of Israel. So they were encouraged, they were strengthened through these messages, and we don't have time to look word for word in all of these prophecies. But I want us to look at these and just try to capture the main message of each one of these visions. The first one here is he's seeing this horse and these red horses, which are walking to and fro through the earth, which in Old Testament prophecy seems to be a sign of judgment, that judgment was taking place. Um, and of course, the judgment of God brings peace, not at the moment for those being judged, but the end result is peace for God's people, which we're going to see play out here in these visions of Zechariah. But we see the main message of this first vision seems to be restoration and rebuilding, that God was restoring his people. He said, I'm jealous for Jerusalem. We've been told today that jealousy is a bad thing. But as you look in scripture, it's actually an attribute of God. God is a jealous God. And there are ways in which um, each one of us, uh, we confuse it with envy sometimes, and there are ways in which there are some things you and I are supposed to be jealous of. I'm supposed to be jealous of my wife. I'm not supposed to like my wife going after other men. That is a good thing that um, we have a godly jealousy. Um, God was jealous of Jerusalem. What does that mean he was jealous of them? Well, look what he's saying here. He's displeased with the heathen that has afflicted them. He says in verse 16, I am returning to Jerusalem with what? With mercies. His jealousy was not a bad thing for his people. His jealousy was a good thing because he loved them. He was bestowing mercy on them. His house was going to be rebuilt. Look at verse 17. Cry yet, saying, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, My cities through prosperity shall yet be spread abroad, and the Lord shall yet comfort Zion, and shall yet choose Jerusalem. So he was choosing Jerusalem once again as the habitation 
for his people. So in this first vision, this vision with the red horse, and then he saw the other horses, and um, the, the main message here is restoration. God is restoring his people. He's going to, they're going to rebuild his house. And in this passage, we see, in this vision, we see God's mercy. There's multiple attributes of God that we see in each one of these messages. But he says here, he is returning with mercy. The second vision is the vision of the four horns. The four horns. Look at verse 18. Then lifted I up mine eyes and saw, and behold, four horns. Now, for us, this may seem like an odd thing, but if you study your Old Testament, you read your, even the book of Psalms, talks about lifting up the horn of our salvation, um, the, a ram's horn or even a cow horn, maybe an uh, ox horn, I guess, could be used for holding anointing oil, as in the picture here. It could have a hole cut in the end and um, a mouthpiece made like a trumpet. We've got a couple of those at the house, and it sounds terrible when our kids try to play them. It sounds like a cow who's trying to die. Um, I've got a shofar from Israel, a ram's horn, the twisted ram's horn. Um, but it was also a picture of authority, a picture of um, victory. That's why David would use it in that way. Um, it was, he was saying, I've got, gotten victory over my enemies. He sees these four horns. What are these going to represent? He says at the end of verse 19, he said, <clears throat> these are the horns which have scattered Judah, <clears throat> Israel, and Jerusalem. <clears throat> I think one thing key to understanding which horns is he talking about? In other words, each one of these horns represents a nation. Nations that had scattered who? Not just Judah, the southern kingdom. But he says, Judah, Israel, and Jerusalem. So as we think about this, and I've seen differing opinions about it, but having studied history myself, looking to see what nations was it that attacked Israel. Um, okay, we're going to see that in a minute. But the nations that attacked Israel, they were going to be destroyed, is going to be his message here. Um, we know that Assyria attacked the northern kingdom, right? Took them into a captivity. Um, Babylon, of course, under Nebuchadnezzar, had invaded Judah. The Medes helped the Persians, right? But if you remember, the Medes also helped the Assyrians. So um, as my dad says, if the Medes showed up to, see, to help whoever seemed to be on the winning side of history, they would show up to help them. And so anyway, so the Assyrians had already been brought low. The Babylonians had already been defeated. The Medes had been swallowed up into Persia by this point. And so now we have Persia still as a ruling power. But look what God says in the next part of this vision. He says in verse 20, And the Lord showed me four carpenters, or craftsmen. Then said I, what come these to do? So what did these four carpenters show up to do? And he 
spake, saying, These are the horns which have scattered Judah, so that no man did lift up his head. But these are come to fray them, to cast out the horns of the Gentiles, which lifted up their horn over the land of Judah to scatter it. So what's the message of this vision? Very simple. The carpenters have come to destroy the horns. And um, the picture was that God was going to bring down those nations that had risen up against his people. And he'd been very specific against Israel, against Judah, and against Jerusalem. So in this one, we see God's judgment. God's judgment on those who had scattered his people. If we go to chapter 2, we see the third vision. The vision of the surveyor. And I realize this is a modern surveyor, but I couldn't find a picture of an ancient surveyor. He says in verse 2, I lifted up mine eyes again and looked, and behold, a man with a measuring line in his hand. Um, anyway, so the question is asked, what are you going to do? Um, he says to measure Jerusalem to see what is the breadth thereof and what is the length thereof. And behold, the angel that talked with me went forth and another angel went out to meet him. Look at verse four, run, speak to this young man saying, Jerusalem shall be inhabited as towns without walls for the multitude of men and cattle therein. What's he talking about? It's going to be inhabited as towns without walls. I think what he's saying is that the population of Jerusalem will again one day be so great that they won't all fit inside the walls. And um, that's not easy to imagine. Verse 5, for I, I'm not so sure that, that that hasn't happened already in Jerusalem today. Um, verse 5, for I, saith the Lord, will be unto her a wall of fire about, and will be the glory in the midst of her. God is talking about his protection over his people. Look at verse number seven. Um, in verse six, he calls for them to come from the land of the north to re-inhabit the land. Verse seven, deliver or escape thyself, O Zion, that dwellest with the daughter of Babylon. For thus saith the Lord of hosts, after the glory hath he sent me unto the nations which spoiled her. For he that toucheth you toucheth the apple of his eye. I think we can already see what is the point of this vision. The point of the vision is that God's going to protect his people. We see God's protection over, as he calls the Jewish people here, the apple of his eye. Look at verse number 10. He says, sing and rejoice, O daughter of Zion, for lo, I come and I will dwell in the midst of thee. So the Lord was saying that he is coming, that he is going to dwell with them. Verse 11, and many nations shall be joined to the Lord in that day and shall be my people. And I will dwell in the midst of thee and thou shalt know the Lord of hosts hath sent me unto thee. And the Lord shall inherit Judah, his portion in, ever wonder why it gets called the Holy Land? 
here is the name, in the Holy Land, and shall choose Jerusalem again. A future time. He's already said that he's choosing Jerusalem again, and they're resettling. But I think here he's talking about the future when he's going to come back, when he's going to return, when he's going to bring judgment on the nations, and he will come to dwell in the midst of Jerusalem. In verse 13, be silent, O all flesh, before the Lord, for he is raised up out of his holy habitation. So in this prophet, in this vision, we see God's protection, God's protection over his people. And as you study end time events and you see Antichrist rise, as you see enemies in the last days that will come against Israel to destroy it, God is going to stand up. Jesus Christ is going to fight for his people. The next vision we have in chapter three is the vision of Joshua, the high priest. He saw Joshua, the high priest, standing. Um, he saw Satan standing at his right hand to resist him. Verse number two, the Lord said unto Satan, uh, the Lord rebuke thee. Even the Lord that hath chosen Jerusalem rebuke thee. Um, is not this a brand plucked out of the fire? Now Joshua was clothed with filthy garments and stood before the angel. This is really important to understand what this vision is about. He was dirty. He was filthy. He's wearing filthy garments. Look at verse number four. What happens to these garments? He says, take away the filthy garments from him. And unto him, he said, behold, I have caused thine iniquity to pass from thee, and I will clothe thee with change of raiment. What is the point here? His clothes, his dirty clothes were representing the sin of the people. And God says, I'm going to remove your sin. I'm giving you new garments. And of course, we understand in the New Testament, this is what happens to a person who comes to faith in Jesus Christ. We receive the righteousness of Christ the imputed righteousness of Christ. Our sins are washed away, our sins are removed, and we receive the righteousness of Christ in their place. But look at verse number five. Look what he says. And I said, let them set a fair miter upon his head. This is a, a turban like the pre-high priest would wear. I think it's interesting. He calls for this miter, this turban to be put on his head again, because um, it is significant that the priest would wear, anybody remember what, the, sign, what the, the word said on the front of their hat? Holiness unto the Lord. So what is he saying? It replace the filth with the holiness of God. Look at verse number um, six. And the angel of the Lord protested unto Joshua or admonished Joshua saying, thus saith the Lord of hosts, if thou wilt walk in my ways, notice the priest was cleansed for a specific purpose. What was the purpose that the priest was cleansed for here? It was to walk in obedience. It was service to the Lord. He said, if thou wilt walk in my ways and if thou wilt keep my charge, then thou shalt also judge my house and shalt also keep my courts 
and I will give thee places to walk among these that stand by. Now, hear now, O Joshua, the high priest, thou and thy fellows, the other priests that sit before thee, for they are men wondered at. These men, I, from what I under, how I understand this to mean, these men are, these serve as a sign. A sign for what? For behold, I will bring forth my servant, the branch. For behold, the stone that I have laid before Joshua upon one stone shall be seven eyes. Let's stop there for just a minute. There's three things that we see in these verses right here. First of all, the overall message of this vision was cleansing for God's priest and the land. The nation, uh, another message we can get from this um, prophecy is that the nation was going to be brought back. Israel was brought back from the Babylonian captivity for the purpose of producing the Messiah. We cannot take our eyes off of the Messiah when we study the Old Testament. We can get all kinds of warped views about things. We can get an exalted view of the Jewish people. And we begin to think they're God's chosen people because of something other than Jesus. We can do the same thing about ourselves. We can start thinking high, lofty thoughts about ourselves. Um, I am the chosen I am, I am, I am. And we start listing all the things that I am. Um, and in all reality, I am chosen in Christ. That's the only reason why I'm chosen is because I'm in Christ. So it's all about him. So we cannot get away from that. And as we, as we look at these visions, one thing that we keep seeing, which is one reason why I keep putting an attribute of God from one of these uh, from each one of these visions, is we keep seeing Christ, who he is, who he is going to be in the future to the nation. And these apply to us. Sometimes people get upset when you make application of scripture, but all scripture was given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, reproof, instruction, and righteousness. To who? Not to Old Testament Christians, or sorry, Old Testament Jews, the New Testament Christians. So there's application of these truths in our lives to the church today. Um, but let's look here at Christ. These three, three titles that are mentioned. Number one, he said, I will bring forth my servant. My servant. This is, a, this is not a new or unique title to the book of Zechariah. Let's look at a few of these passages. Isaiah 42. Isaiah 42. There's several in Isaiah. We'll look at a couple of them. Isaiah 42 and verse number one. This title, My Servant. Um, Isaiah 42, one. Keep silence before me, O islands, and let the people renew their strengths. Um, that is the wrong verse. Isaiah 40, I'm in 41. Isaiah 42, behold, my servant whom I uphold, mine elect in whom my soul delighteth, I have put my spirit upon him. He shall bring forth judgment to the Gentiles. Look at Isaiah 52, verse 
Isaiah 52 and verse number 13. Behold, my servant shall deal prudently. He shall be exalted and extolled and be very high. Look at, uh, well, in verse 14, as many um, were ast uh, astonished at the, his visage was so marred more than any man and his form more than the sons of men. What's he talking about there? He's talking about the crucifixion of Christ, how badly he would be beaten. Isaiah 53 and verse number 11, he shall see the travail of his soul, talking about the crucifixion, and shall be satisfied. By his knowledge shall my, and he adds another word here, my righteous servant justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. If you look at Matthew chapter 12, as we go to the New Testament, we see this title of Christ holding up. Matthew chapter 12 and verse number 18. Behold, my servant, whom I have chosen, my beloved, in whom my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit upon him, and he shall show judgment to the Gentiles. If you look over at um, Mark, the purpose of Mark was to show Jesus, present Jesus as a servant. Mark chapter 10 and verse number 34. Uh, not 34, sorry, 45. For even the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto but to be a minister or a servant and to give his life a ransom for many. So Jesus himself was saying that his job was to be a servant, to offer his life. Look at Philippians chapter 2. You realize how many of these have to do with the crucifixion of Christ, of his sacrifice, that he was going to give his life as a servant on the cross. Ephesians, sorry, Philippians chapter 2 beginning at verse number five. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Yes, he was going to be lifted up. Yes, he was going to be exalted. Yes, he is worshiped. Yes, he will be seated on a throne. But he came the first time to be a servant. He came the first time to walk in obedience to his father. He came the first time to give his life a ransom for many. He came to pay for our sins on the cross. The next phrase that we see here in um, the, the next title of Messiah is branch. My servant, the branch. And you'll notice in the King James Bible, I'm not sure about other versions, King James Bible, it's all caps there. Why? He's, they're wanting us to understand exactly who the branch is. Who is the branch? He's talking about Jesus Christ. Um, Zechariah is going to use this title again, Zechariah chapter 6 and verse number 12 and speak unto him, saying, Thus speaketh the Lord of hosts, saying, Behold, the man whose name is the branch, and he shall grow up out of his place, 
and he shall build the temple of the Lord. Um, and this was identifying Messiah as priest. But if you look in Jeremiah chapter 23, Jeremiah uses this title. Jeremiah 23, beginning at verse number 5. Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that I will raise unto David a righteous branch, and a king shall reign and prosper, and shall execute judgment and justice in the earth. In his days, Judah shall be saved, and Israel shall dwell safely. Now, you might jump on that and say, oh, well, it's talking about when Jesus came and died on the cross to save his people. But what did John chapter 1 say that his people did to him? Did they receive him or did they reject him? Now, let me ask you, if you're familiar with a little bit of history, did they dwell safely in Jerusalem after Jesus was crucified? So this is not talking about when Jesus came the first time. When it wasn't, when the passage isn't actually fulfilled the first time, we assume he's talking about a second coming of Jesus that's going to happen in the future. In the day when the righteous branch comes and he's going to reign as king. Did he reign as king the first time? He did not come to reign as king the first time. Wise men from the east came to worship him, but he did not reign as king. Not the first time. In his days, when he comes back to reign, we would say, in his days, Judah shall be saved and Israel shall dwell safely. And this is his name whereby he shall be called the Lord, our righteousness. So in Zechariah, the righteous branch was going to be priest. We see here in Jeremiah 23 that he was going to be king. Look at Jeremiah 33. Jeremiah 33, beginning at verse number 14. Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that I will perform that good thing which I have promised unto the house of Israel and to the house of Judah in those days. And at that time will I cause the branch of righteousness to grow up unto, who is he going to come out of? He was going to come out of the line of David, and he shall execute judgment and righteousness in the land. In those days shall Judah be saved, and Jerusalem shall dwell safely. And this is the name wherewith she shall be called, the Lord our righteousness. Um, look at, and he's going to be judge here. But if you look at Isaiah chapter 4, Isaiah talks about, um, he uses this title. Isaiah chapter 4. Isaiah chapter 4, beginning of verse 1. And in that day, seven women shall take hold of one man, saying, We will eat our own bread and wear our own apparel. Only let us be called by thy name and take away our reproach. In that day shall the branch of the Lord be beautiful and glorious and the fruit of the earth shall be excellent and comely for them that are escaped to Israel. And it shall come to pass that he that is left in Zion and he that remaineth in Jerusalem shall be called holy. 
even every one that is written among the living in Jerusalem. When the Lord shall have washed away the filth of the daughters of Zion, we could keep reading there, but let's move on. You see there that their land will be cleansed, their sin will be removed. If you look at Psalm 132, it helps us better understand exactly what he's talking about with this branch. In Psalm 132, he's talking about the fact that he would grow out of David. It was God's promise to David that his line would have this eternal throne. So he was the branch, the branch that would come out of David. So he was the, my servant, the branch. And then he uses another title for him. For behold, the stone that I have laid before Joshua. Now let's look at this real quick. Let's go back to Psalm 118. I went back to Deuteronomy this week. There's a place where he was called the rock of his people, but it's a different term, a different Hebrew term with a different meaning. It's a different kind of a stone. Here we're talking about a foundation stone, a stone that has been cut out that's going to be used for the foundation of a building. Psalm 118 and verse number 22, he says, the stone which the builders refused is become the headstone of the corner. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. Isaiah chapter 8. Isaiah chapter 8. Isaiah. Refers to Christ in this way. Isaiah 8, verse 13, sanctify the Lord of hosts himself and let him be your fear and let him be your dread. And he shall be for a sanctuary, but for a stone of stumbling and for a rock of offense to both the houses of Israel, for a gin and for a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And many among them shall stumble and fall and be broken and be snared and be taken, bind up the testimony, seal the law, among my disciples. Now look at Isaiah chapter 28 and verse number 16. Therefore, thus saith the Lord God, behold, I lay in Zion for a foundation, a stone, a tried stone, a precious cornerstone, a sure foundation. He that believeth shall not make haste. Look at Daniel chapter 2. Uh, we're not even going to read those right now, but Daniel chapter 2, verses 35 and then 44 through 45, the vision of um, Nebuchadnezzar, if you remember, there was a the big statue. And then what was it that got cut out of, a, out of the side of the mountain? There was this big rock, this big stone, it rolled down and it crushed the mountain. Look at Matthew chapter 21. And it's interesting because that um, rock became a mountain and covered the whole earth. Um, and um, it's a picture of Christ coming back, Christ returning and ruling and reigning upon his throne. Um, Matthew 21 and verse number 42, Jesus saith unto them, Did ye never read in the scriptures the stone which the builders rejected? The same has become the head of the corner. This is the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. 
Therefore, say I unto you, the kingdom of God shall be taken from you and given to a nation, bringing forth the fruits thereof. And whosoever shall fall on this stone shall be broken, but on whomsoever it shall fall, it will grind him to powder. Powerful words Jesus used um, explaining that he was this stone. If you look at Ephesians chapter 2, we see further explanation. In a New Testament context, Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 19, Now therefore ye are no more strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and of the household of God, and are built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Jesus Christ himself being who? The chief cornerstone, in whom all the building fitly framed together groweth unto an holy temple in the Lord. So notice this chief cornerstone is connected in um, Zechariah in Psalm 118 and here and as well as when Jesus used it in Matthew, it's connected to the temple. And he's telling the church, you are a spiritual house. You grow up together as a holy temple to the Lord, in whom ye also are builded together as an habitation of God through the Spirit. So the church is a spiritual house built on what cornerstone? We're built on Jesus Christ. And that's exactly what Jesus told the Jews that day. He said, God is going to build his house, or, or rather, um, you've rejected the cornerstone. So another nation, who was that other nation that is mentioned sometimes in the Gospels? He's talking about the church, those who will receive Christ. First um, Peter chapter 2. In 1 Peter chapter 2, he deals with this. He says that we are built up as lively stones. 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse number 5. Um, we're, we're built up as lively stones. Let's look down actually at verse number uh, 6. Wherefore also it is contained in the scripture, Behold, I lay in Sion a chief cornerstone, elect, precious, and he that believeth on him shall not be confounded. Unto you therefore which believe, he is precious. And unto them which be disobedient, the stone which the builders disallowed, the same is made the head of the corner. And a stone of stumbling, and a rock of offense, even to them which stumble at the word, being disobedient. The, to most of the Jews of Jesus' day, he was a stumbling block. There was not, a, they did not receive him. They did not readily accept him. He became a stumbling block to them. He said, wherein too also they were appointed. Verse 9, but ye are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood. Notice once again the connection to the temple here. We are a royal priesthood as believers. We are an holy nation, a peculiar people, that ye should show forth the praises of him who hath called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. So he is called here in this passage in Zechariah chapter 3, Christ is held up as my servant, as the branch, as the stone. 
Now look at the end of verse number nine. He says, I will remove the iniquity of the land in one day. There will come a time we understand through the teachings of places like Romans that for a time Israel has been set aside. But look at Romans chapter 25 and verse 20. What did I put here? Romans 11. Did I say Romans 25? Romans 11 and verse number 27. For this is my covenant unto them when I shall take away their sins. We have, we have um, Paul here quoting from Zephaniah. God is going to take away the sin, the iniquity, of his people. What a beautiful day that will be. In this, in this vision, we see the grace of God, God's grace. By grace are ye saved. He's come to save his people. God's servant, the branch, the stone, has come to save his people. And as we'll see in our next lesson, there will come a day when the nation of Israel will receive him as Messiah. But that day has yet to come. Let's look at chapter four, the vision of the golden candlestick. We need to go ahead and finish up here. In chapter four, we see the vision of the golden candlestick. On each side of the candlestick, he sees an olive tree. The um, main point, I think, of this vision is that what the Spirit begins, he finishes. Look at verse number four, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, saith the Lord of hosts. Uh, verse nine, the hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of this house. His hand shall also finish it. And thou shalt know that the Lord of hosts hath sent me unto you. For who hath despised the day of small things? I love that phrase. Who hath despised the day of of small things. You remember some of the men were weeping when they re started rebuilding the temple because it was so much smaller than the first one. The glory of this one didn't seem as great to them. He says, who hath despised the day of small things? God had bigger things than they had in mind. Um, look at the end of this. Um, they are the eyes of the Lord, which run to and fro throughout the whole earth. What were these eyes that they saw running throughout to and fro? It was the eyes of the Lord. What did this show? It showed his omniscience, his omniscience. God is omniscient, meaning he is all knowing. And so in this vision we see that what God starts, he'll finish. It's not by might, it's not by power, but it's by God's spirit. And the way they were to build the temple under the power of the spirit is the same way you and I are supposed to do everything we do. It's supposed to be under the power of the spirit, not by our might, not by our strength. We're going to stop right there. We'll finish this up next time. Not by our might, not by our power, it's not by our strength, but it's by the Spirit of the Lord. God told them to rebuild the temple, and he was going to give them the power to do it. 
What a powerful, powerful truth. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for the truth of your word that what you call us to do, you will enable us to do. We thank you that you have given us your Holy Spirit to indwell us, to teach us, to guide us. And I just pray, Holy Spirit, that you would open our eyes as we study your word this week, as we read your word, that um, you would just open, illumine our hearts and our minds to your truth. Lord, I pray that you'd just help us to realize this week it's not by our might, it's not by our strength or our power, but it's by your Spirit. We realize that through Christ we can accomplish all things. So Lord, I just pray um, that you would help us to take these truths that we've seen today and uh, we would make, your Holy Spirit would make application to our lives. I pray that you'd help in the services uh, this morning. pray that you'd bless Pastor Joe as he preaches, as he brings your word, that you would speak to each of our hearts. In Christ's name we pray.